tell me if this rings true. I've found that when I ask someone if they like scary movies, I basically get one of two responses. It's either like, no way, I get scared way too easily. Or it's like, scary movies? I'm obsessed with scary movies. I myself fall very much into the latter category. There's something weirdly addictive about the thrill of the suspense, that feeling you get in your stomach when you're like, oh no, something bad's about to happen. And my favorite scary movies aren't the ones about monsters just killing people for shits and giggles. I like the ones where monsters are killing people for compelling reasons. Give me a backstory. Give me twisted psychological motives. Give me personal trauma as metaphor. Now that's scary. And for me, one of the movies that does this best is the 1992 cult horror classic Candyman. Know the story? It hinges on an urban legend that if you look into a mirror and say the name Candyman five times, the Candyman himself, this ghost-like ghoul with a hook for a hand, shows up. And, well... When the film came out back in 92, it instantly took a spot in black cinema canon. It even inspired a slew of sequels, the most recent one from 2021. But as great as it is, there are some parts of the movie that just kind of make my skin crawl, and not in a good way. So I tried to understand that discomfort, and what I learned taught me a whole lot more about who gets to tell these tales of horror. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history, and this month, we're telling you the stories that still haunt our world. I'm Simone Polanin. 29 years ago this week, on Friday, October 16th, 1992, the original Candyman hit theaters. Today on the show, we're exploring the legacy of the film, why it has such staying power, despite its flaws, and what the horror movie genre can tell us about the cultural reckoning we're living through. Say it with me. Candyman. 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 Dare to keep going? More after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Do either of you feel inspired to say Candyman five times while looking into a mirror? I would never do that. I don't play that. <laughs> I would never. I don't step on cracks. As my mom has once said, she's like, I don't know any of that old magic, but I respect it. To really get into why I love this movie so much, but also why parts of it make me feel icky, I called up Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. They co-host the podcast for Colored Nerds. They're horror buffs. And most importantly, they're Candyman superfans. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah, what makes it one of your favorites? Well, it's just, it's a horror movie. It is meant to be dark and macabre and like feel very... Uh, tense and unsettling, like the entire time. For sure. Um, Like to Eric's point, it's like deliberately macabre, but I love, I absolutely love horror movies. I love being scared at home or in the theater. I think it's just so much fun. If you've never seen the 1992 film Candyman, well, first off, I recommend you change that immediately. But here's what you need to know. The film takes place in early 90s Chicago, and follows the story of Helen Lyle, a white graduate student at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She is a white woman who's dealing with sexism in academia, where she is focusing on studying urban legends. And uh, there's this one specific urban legend of Candyman that takes place in, you know, a Black part of Chicago. And it's through her research that she learns about this one local legend in particular. Candyman, a boogeyman-type figure who's seen haunting the nearby housing project called Cabrini Green. When you look at Cabrini Green, you know, you see the graffiti that is everywhere in this housing film. You see how the, like, limited access to sunlight that people, you know, have in their homes. It's not windows in their homes, really. The story really takes off with a murder at Cabrini Green. And the residents there keep saying it's Candyman who did it. Helen descends from her ivory tower at the university and heads down to the scene of the murder in person. You know, Helen continues to basically force her way into these projects. There are people at the entrance when she's trying to come in who are like, who are you here to see? We know you're not supposed to be here. Like, who are you? What, why? Like, you're dressed like a department store catalog. Why are you here? In the end, Helen really should have listened to the residents at Cabrini-Green. Because, okay, minor spoiler here, the Candyman, the real Candyman, he shows up. Helen. And he haunts the fuck out of Helen. Oh! I came 
Do I know you? No. But you doubted me. The film is well made with rich cinematography, expert pacing, super effective sound design. But I like to think Candyman endures to this day because of one performance in particular, from the titular boogeyman himself, as played by the incomparable Tony Todd. Tony, sorry, we cuss, right? Tony fucking Todd. His voice, his presence. He's like, uh, Helen. 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 Be my victim. Be my victim. It's Candyman's movie. It's Tony Todd's movie. Maybe it's also, too, because, like, Tony Todd was probably, like, 35, 40, 6'5", <laughs> black man. <laughs> Maybe the age time out. Now I'm like, hmm, like, how bad is a hook? Like, what can we do? Well, if you were looking for a horror-themed fan fiction prompt, you're welcome. Casting a tall, deep-voiced black man as the monster, you might be thinking, hmm, that's an iffy choice, politically. But when it came out in 92, the film garnered a lot of support from Black audiences. It grossed almost $26 million, and reportedly, the NAACP even called the film good fun and found it progressive that a Black actor could join the ranks of iconic boogeymen like Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger. And I think, in part, that's because Candyman isn't some arbitrarily violent villain. We come to understand the journey he's been on to become who he is. I think one of the aspects of the film that's the most exciting is how Candyman becomes a sympathetic figure. Candyman is, is the character that I sympathize with the most. I understand why he wants vengeance. He died from an unimaginable act of racist violence. That unimaginable act of racist violence, it complicates Candyman's story. From that of a senseless monster to a more sympathetic character. Because before he was Candyman, he was just a man who lived in New Orleans in the late 1800s, the son of a formerly enslaved man. He was a painter by trade, celebrated for his talent, and famous enough that he landed a commission to paint the portrait of a white woman, the daughter of a local wealthy landowner. In the process of painting this woman's portrait, the two fell in secret forbidden love. But then she got pregnant and things quickly fell apart. The painter left New Orleans and fled up north, but the girl's father hired a pack of men to follow the painter to what later became Cabrini Green. When the men found him, they pinned him down and sawed off his painting hand. And then they slathered honey all over his body and let a nearby swarm of bees sting him to death. They burned his corpse, but his spirit remained. Vengeful, murderous, and full of rage. That spirit became the monster we meet in the movie. The monster with the bees crawling on his face and a hook where his hand used to be. The one the locals call Candyman. The story of the painter's journey to becoming Candyman is reminiscent of a type of story that's all too common in America's history. 
of gruesome acts of violence against Black people at the hands of white people. But in this case, that story was invented for the film. You see, Candyman was originally based on a short story searching out the class divides in poor urban areas in Liverpool. And while the race of the characters is never explicitly mentioned, the story is very specific to an English social context. So this white British director, Bernard Rose, read it and knew he had to make the movie. But he also knew he could reach a larger audience if it was set in America. And so he transported the story to Chicago and the Cabrini-Green housing complex, populated mostly by Black American residents. A place where I think the movie kind of like fails is that there is like a gesturing at like inequality without explaining why that is. I'm not saying that like uh, Candyman should have specifically had the phrase redlining in it. But like, I think that something that the film left unexamined was like, well, you know, we kind of get into the badness of Cabrini Green, but there isn't really too much investigation into how it got that way or why Cabrini Green exists the way it does in the film uh, to begin with. Picture a no man's land with broken windows, dark abandoned buildings, no law and order. This is a CBS News report from 1989 on Cabrini Green, the real Cabrini Green, an actual public housing project in Chicago. There are carefully demarcated areas controlled by rival bands of armed militia fighting over the rubble. Nearly every night there's sniper fire. It sounds like Beirut, but in fact, it's America. In 1942, the Francis Cabrini homes were built to be this Chicago utopia of affordable housing. And additional public housing units were built in the area soon after to make this giant complex. But funding for upkeep and social services disappeared, leaving buildings full of broken appliances and elevators. With little oversight, the different buildings were warred over by different local gangs. A 1982 study found that the Chicago Housing Authority was one of the worst managed public housing agencies in the nation. It exists unseen except by those who live there, a creature of state, local, and federal government, the product of bad politics, failed policy, and official neglect. And the depiction of Cabrini Green that ended up on screen in Candyman has a lot of problems. I think my hesitation is so much of it is a translation of perceived Blackness, whether it's perceiving its poverty, whether it's perceiving its like horror and its trauma, and it's almost, almost all filtered through the lens of a white woman who is preying on them. The film places Candyman in Cabrini Green to magnify the pain and trauma that's already there but not in a way that actually humanizes the Black people carrying it, because it chooses to focus more on how all the white people respond to it. Would you call Candyman a Black horror film? Hmm. Uh, That's a good question. The answer to which requires a deep dive into the history of Black horror, which we'll get to after the break. How's that for a hook? Uh. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Before the break, I spoke with Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings about the 1992 film Candyman. As much as we love the film, there are a few places it falls short. Namely, it features Black people and their stories— but it doesn't center their experience in a way that rings true. I wanted to understand why a film like this can feel like both a success and a failure. So I talked to an expert and maybe the bravest person I've ever met. I say Candyman almost every morning in the mirror. Really? (laughs) I do. Wow. In my bathroom mirror. How's that going for you? Well, look, we're here together, so I think it brings me luck. (laughs) (laughs) This is Dr. Robin Means Coleman. She's an avid Candyman fan, professor of communication studies, and vice president and associate provost for diversity and inclusion at Northwestern University. My claim to fame is that I wrote the sort of the book on Black horror movies called Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to Present. What I do is take a look at that entire historical trajectory of the ways in which Blacks are are participating in the horror genre. So what we're talking about is more than a 100-year history where Black people show up in horror films. Not only did Dr. Coleman study over 100 years of film history, To put her book together, she also watched over 3,000 horror films, including, duh, Candyman. And in her research, she found a lot of films that had the same problem that Candyman has, where there are Black characters present, even in big roles, but the films themselves don't really serve them. It comes out of sort of the mind and imagination of a white director, out of whiteness. Whiteness is the center of the story. It isn't blackness. These aren't black horror films. Not quite. Dr. Coleman calls films like these... Blacks in horror films. Blacks in horror is really about the ways in which black people are either parachuted into stories, they may be used as uh, vehicles to push the narrative forward, but it really isn't about their history, their culture, their experience. The original Candyman is based on a short story that's not originally about Black people. It's directed by a white man, 
And it's about a white woman entering a Black neighborhood where she's not necessarily welcome. And the film preys on the anxieties of white audiences about impoverished Black communities. All of these traits are hallmarks of Blacks in horror. What's complicated about this story is that Monster re-emerges, but in Cabrini Green, and terrorizes Black folks when right across the tracks are sort of the descendants of those who have just meted out such trauma, not only on him, but on and really on the Black community. To many Black audiences watching, myself included, this is a major logical and emotional flaw. We understand how Candyman becomes the monster that he is, but his choices make it make sense. This is totally in contrast with the films that truly center Blackness. Those are what Dr. Coleman calls Black horror. This is horror coming out of the imagination of Black directors who are featuring and centering and starring Black folks and Black stories. It doesn't mean even that it has to be a 100% Black cast, but what it does do is that it speaks um, to Black experiences and histories and culture, but it really does center Blackness. Dr. Coleman says an early example of true Black horror is the 1972 Black exploitation classic, Blackula. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother. Even than he. I mean, we're talking about a vampire who's you know, kind of moving through the slave triangle trade and ends up in LA and, and does kind of mini lecture on, on that. A black Avenger <laughs> rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. That's Black Horror. Yes, it's campy Dracula's soul brother. But Dr. Coleman says in this film, we have the Black experience in front of and behind the camera. And in terms of representation, it makes a difference. In the mid-90s came another classic Black horror film, Tales from the Hood. Now, your most terrifying nightmare and your most frightening reality are about to meet on the streets. The film was executive produced by Spike Lee and set in South Central L.A., which had just gone through the Rodney King beating, the L.A. race riots, and the O.J. trial. And its Black director, Rusty Cundiff, made the setting an important part of the story. Rusty's intervening on these narratives. He's homing in on police brutality, He's also indicting our politicians, where he's also demanding that Black people take some accountability and sort of behave in the ways that protect the Black community. That leads us to the Black horror film that revitalized the genre. Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. If there's too many white people, I get nervous. (laughs) I know you know it. No, 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 no. 
I'm talking about Jordan Peele's masterpiece, Get Out. I think that everybody's talking about Black horror because of Jordan Peele, not just because of the box office popularity and high quality of Get Out, but it does this sort of crossover moment. We've got a Black horror film that wins an Academy Award. And for kind of mainstream viewership, that's huge. Peele launched this moment in culture where Black horror is taken seriously. So it makes sense he would want to go back and fix the problems with the movies that got him interested in Black horror in the first place, including Candyman. This was one of the movies that told me that, that Black people can be in horror. This is Jordan Peele from an interview with the Movie Times in August of 2021. I was a horror fan, and we didn't have a Black Freddy. We didn't have a Black Jason. But when Candyman came along, it felt very daring, and it felt very uh, cathartic. Like Brittany, Eric, and me, Peel was bowled over by the commanding Tony Todd as the original Candyman. It made the film distinctly special, but not perfect. Helen Lyle is a bit of a fish out of water, <laughs> to say the least, in the Cabrini Green area. A lot is focused on her fear and therefore the audience's fear of this black space. Peel saw an opportunity to update the story. And the story that resonated to me now is the, the story of my fear of the white space. And to be able to explore the quote-unquote mirror image or the flip of the first one, we, we tried to bring out the connection with the, the fact that this, this is a, it's an epidemic of violence on Black bodies in this country. And so Peel teamed up with Nia DaCosta, also a Black director, and made a new movie. In the Peel-produced 2021 sequel to Candyman, we follow the story of Anthony McCoy, a young Black artist in the Chicago scene. Early in the film, Anthony learns that his roots aren't in the south side of Chicago where he spent his childhood. He was actually born in Cabrini-Green, and now he's living in the luxury condos where Cabrini Green once stood, a detail that's borrowed from the true story of the infamous housing project. The last Cabrini Green high-rise building was demolished in 2011, displacing thousands of residents. In the movie, Anthony makes it his mission to understand the gentrification that swallowed this place, and he talks about it explicitly. Who do you think makes the hood? The city cuts off a community and waits for it to die. Then they invite developers in and say, hey, you artists, you young people, you white, preferably, or only, please come to the hood, it's cheap. And if you stick it out for a couple of years, we'll bring you a Whole Foods. Unlike the original Candyman, the 2021 film centers Blackness, not just by having a Black protagonist, but by delving into the anxieties and the fears that reflect the present realities of many Black audiences watching. Black horror is having a moment right now, which is great, but actually introduces another problem. See, I feel like Hollywood does this thing where an idea is trending, right? 
really connecting with the public, and they'll take it and just kind of flatten it into the shape of a movie. If you've got the right people involved, you can get something nuanced and thrilling and true. But more often than not, you get something much clumsier, something that misses what was special about the original idea and just reduces it to its most obvious, most vulgar form. There's been a lot of investment by Hollywood in stories featuring Black people where the horror has something to do with police violence or police brutality. Brittany Luce, co-host of the For Colored Nerds podcast, who we heard from earlier, has also noticed this unfortunate trend. I personally don't actually have much interest in watching those kinds of movies just because that type of violence is not new to me as a Black person when it's just sort of like that relentless battery of violence against Black people. It just feels harmful and tiring. In 2020, the Black horror film Antebellum was panned for violent depictions of the treatment of enslaved people that felt gimmicky and exploitative. Lena Waithe and Little Marvin's 2021 TV series called Them was criticized for being a rehash of racial traumas for the sake of shock value. Britney's had the same experience a lot of us have had. Every time we turn on our TVs or open Twitter, we see real-life violence constantly. So when these images get reflected back to us on film in this ham-handed way, it's like, yeah, we know. That echo chamber thing of social media is, I think, what gets a lot of like film executives to be like, oh, we have to make a movie that's going to be speaking out against racism. And I think that might be where some of that sort of like message stuff is coming in. And it's a drain. The horror we watch does not exist in a vacuum. And our understanding of what we're seeing on our screens is changing. It's like our tolerance for trauma as entertainment is shifting as we're confronted with the reality of what that trauma actually looks like. We've always seen this kind of Black trauma in our entertainment media. That's what made Black horror films so popular. But in 2020 and 2021 in particular, this is a moment where our entertainment media, our real-life lived experience are blurring, and it's too much. This moment we're in right now, it influences the way we experience violence against Black people in movies. And Dr. Coleman points out, this even changes the way we watch classic films. It's one thing to see Ben shot down by a militia at the end of Night of the Living Dead. It's another thing if we saw that moment in 2020 and then walked out of a movie theater and then saw George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, that's when it feels like there's no relief from these narratives, real or imagined. And it feels like it ceases to be entertaining because it's happening every day right in front of us. Yeah, you said something at the beginning there that I'd love for you to expand on, which is we are used to seeing Black trauma in our entertainment, and that, that's part of the reason, or that, that's what makes the entertainment so popular. So I think Black stories, and not all of them are about trauma, right? 
But to tell the story of being black in America means to tell the story of the ways in which black people navigate this institution, right? And, and its policies that are not set up for us, its laws that are not set up for us. And so to create narratives about being black in, a, in, in the U.S. means that sometimes these stories reflect on those kinds of experiences. And then 2020 happened. And at, I think in 20 and 2021, it became fatiguing. For me, the horror genre has been a space where I can explore these scary feelings, like pain, terror, disgust, panic, but from the safety of my seat in the audience, free of consequences, except for maybe sleeping with the light on for a few nights. But that doesn't work as well when what you're watching is just the images of actual real-life horror reflected back to you with just better camera work and some ominous scoring. What we're demanding from the horror genre is what we're asking from the rest of media. Stories that stay true to the people they're conveying, that don't just draw on the parts that are best for spectacle. We want to be entertained, yes, but more than that, we want to see our humanity on screen. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, we visit the banks of the haunted Lake Lanier. You reach out in the dark and all of a sudden you feel an arm and a leg and it doesn't move. That's creepy. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig, and our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our intern. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Moral Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Matt Bowl and Enoch Kim. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. This episode included super special original spooky music by Bobby Lord featuring Natalia Peruse, aka the Saw Lady. It was recorded by Sam Bear at Relic Room. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings, whose podcast for Colored Nerds will be relaunching later this fall. You can subscribe to their feed wherever you listen to podcasts and follow them on Twitter, at For Colored Nerds, for more updates. And special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampot. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And hey, we want to hear from you. What's a moment in history that you can't get past? Do you have a personal brush with history? Tell us about it. Send us an email to notpastit at zspmedia.com 
or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-9252. You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Candyman. 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 That was a dirty trick. <laughs> oh, man. I've walked right into that one. <laughs>